I just want to open my heart and talk to you. And if you don't remember another thing I say, I want you to remember my opening statement. Life will make a contract with you. And if you don't demand much of it, it won't require much of you. I want to say that again, because we're talking about building self-esteem. Life will make a contract with you. And if you don't require much of it, it won't require much of you. You have to, to learn where the real battles in life are. Some people are firing away at abandoned lines when the real battle is elsewhere. You have to learn what to make a federal case out of, what not to. For instance, a bulldog can whip a skunk any day, but some fights ain't worth it. So what we're talking about is basic. It's something you need to wrestle with at whatever age you are now, 16, 17, 18, of understanding yourself, building self-esteem. For believe it or not, Jesus Christ in reiterating and underscoring the law, did say that a man must love his neighbor as himself, which underlines the fact that we are supposed to have a good appraisal of ourselves, a good image of victory, of God working through us, and of giving it our best shot. That's why I said life will make a contract with you. If you want to be mediocre, well, you, you know, you can be mediocre because excellency in our day is very scarce. Some people are only superlative in their middling. They just don't demand much of life. They're the personification of mediocrity, and that's all they excel in. And in the dictionary, if you would check Webster's, Webster's Dictionary, mediocrity means neither good nor bad in the middle. Mediocrity is uh, playing with five strings when you've got a 12-string instrument. It's typing with five fingers and one eye when the Lord gave you ten fingers and two eyes. It's, it's not reaching your potential. It's reaping ten rows of corn where there are acres to be harvested. It's a person with eagle talent fluttering around in a chicken yard. Mediocracies. I think you know what I'm talking about. It's crawling on your hands and knees when God meant for you to walk and to, uh, to fly. Make up your mind that you're not going to be mediocre. That whatever talents that God has given you, add to those talents your character and get a good self-image of what you are. You see, Jesus told us that we're not all put together alike anyhow. That's why Paul said not to compare ourselves among ourselves. He said some have 30, some have 60, and some have 100 fold. But now look, the man in the talents that only had one talent, the curse wasn't that he had one talent. The curse was he didn't use the one he had. Remember, he took it and hid it in a napkin and uh, wouldn't use it because he was afraid to risk anything. 
And Jesus called him a wicked and slothful servant. And not because he only had one talent, but because he didn't give it his best shot. So some of us are 30, some are 60, some are 100. And the sovereign God put us together that way. But now, a man that's 30 and is operating at 30 in God's sight is ahead of a man who is 100 and operating at 70. But by the world's criteria, they'd say the man at 70-fold is doing more than the man at 30-fold, but not God. See, God keeps the score. And I'm glad he does. Job said, my witness is in heaven, my record is on high. The only record that counts is the one that God counts. But a lot of times we have what we call peer pressure. And we're always trying to compare ourselves by what somebody else does. No need to be in competition with anybody but yourself. I'm not trying to be better than you are. I'm trying to be better than I am. We're living in a highly competitive world. And uh, a little tension is all right because there's such a thing as creative tension. And all of us have to have a little tension on us. But this... Just like the other day, I heard about a, uh, a little fellow that had gotten a white football. Y'all seen these white footballs? For Christmas. He was out in the backyard playing with it, and he kicked it over into the neighbor's chicken yard. Well, it rolled over there, and the old rooster of the yard saw it, and he backed off, walked all around that white football. And finally, he called all the hens over, and he lined them up. And the old rooster had them lined up before that white football. And he said, now, girls, I'm not on your case. I'm not fussing. I'm not griping. But I just want you to see what the competition in the next yard is putting out. Well, you know, that's a tremendous amount of peer pressure when it's an illusion. It's just a bag of hot air. It's not an egg. Well, a lot of pressure that we have put on us in life, you know, to produce according to somebody else's scale or criteria, is just a lot of hot air. And maybe it's beyond our goal and it's an illusion anyhow. So you have to have a good self-esteem. What am I worth? What can I do? And you know, I've had, I've had fellows say, but I'm worthless. Anytime you feel you're worthless... Think of Calvary. That's what Jesus thought we were worth. Every one of us have worth in the eyes of God. And God has a plan for all of our lives. And he expects us to have a good image of self-worth. And that's not pride. And it's not false humility because false... Humility is just pride with another face on it. And I'm so proud that I'm humble. So come to grips with that, that there is nothing wrong with a good self-analysis and an understanding that God made you as you are to use you as he planned and that you're not in competition with anybody but yourself and the devil. And you just want to be, if it's 30, if it's 60, if it's 100, whatever God wants me to be. I want to give it my best shot. Say, did you read about the fellow in the Boston Marathons last year that ran the marathons on his hands? It was the longest period of time that it had ever taken a man, four days. He had no legs. His legs were blown off in Vietnam. 
And, of course, he was the last one to come in, but he got the biggest cheers. took him four days to make it. took him longer to get across the bridge than it did most of them to run the whole race. But he did it just to prove that though he had no legs, he could do it. He could do it. The fellow from Canada last year that just completed uh, a cripple, paralyzed from his waist down, in a wheelchair, went all the way around the world, took him two years to roll around the world in a wheelchair. Why did you do it? Because he, he, he was not going to be encased by his own limitations. Imagine inferiorities, self-imposed limitations or what will defeat you. God won't ever defeat you. Anybody got a set of keys? Throw me a set of keys here, fellas. Let me show you some. Okay. Now look. Say this is... These are my keys. They're not Jason's, but they're mine. This is the key to my office. I use it every day. This is the key to the uh, back door of our complex that I seldom ever use. Seldom ever use it. Well, this key can say, Brother Tenney uses me every day. I'm a somebody and you're a nobody. Because he ever hardly ever uses you. But this key could say, hey, frequency of use is not the basis for importance. Because when he wants to open the back door, you won't work. And God's got a slot for you in life. And it may look like others are being used more frequently. But if you're in, in your particular slot, when God wants to use you, you're the only thing that will work there. So frequency of use is not indicative of importance. And it's not what you are in public that impresses God. It's what you are in private. And the true measure of a man's character could be determined by what he'd do if he knew he'd never be found out. And you are what you are in the dark. So don't, don't get pushed into this mold. Twelfth chapter of Romans, Philip's translation, Paul said, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Jesus taught us not to let the world judge us by its own criteria. Uh, certain things he said that were done among the Gentiles. Why? Well, he said, that, no, that doesn't matter with you. We are not judged by the world's criteria. The three S's, sight, size, and sound. How big is it is? How big is it? How wide is it? How much noise does it make? You know. Tameness, lameness, sameness. What difference does it make? As long as you are God's man in God's place, doing God's work in God's way, in God's time. The Ark of the Covenant, not everybody. There's only four men that carried the Ark. But there were some pins that held the tent down that covered the Ark, and some fellows had to carry the pins. Well, now, the fellows that carried the Ark were out front, but when it came time to pitch the tent, if it hadn't been for the pin carriers, there'd have been no tent. The whole thing would have collapsed. And the work of God is held up by inconspicuous individuals. In fact, God has a, has a, a conspiracy of the insignificant. He is in a conspiracy with insignificant things. 
to try to prove that he can really make something out of them. Jesus said, Jesus said in, in Matthew 4, 18 and 19, he was walking by the sea and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net. Now, this is not my thought, but it's interesting to note that Peter and Andrew were casting. When he found James and John, they were mending their nets. Now, in life, there are casters and there are menders. And the fishing business requires all of them. And again, we can't, God may call you to be a caster, he may call you to be a mender. Somebody's got to wash the nets and keep them clean. Well, anyhow, they were fishers, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Maybe I ought to give a little title to what I'm going to talk about. Let's call it this. God uses chickens for doves. God uses chickens for doves. You know what a chicken is? A chicken means cowardly. Somebody that, uh, you know, will run, won't face life. And they, they've got a crazy game in the world that's so dangerous they call chicken where two fellows get the car and go toward one another. The one that fakes out first, well, he's chicken. Pretty crazy thing to me. But then a dove is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Symbol of power. But God has taken men in the scriptures who at one time ran from the will of God, who were chicken, and turned them around and made doves out of them, made symbols of the Holy Spirit out of them. And the God that did that in the Old Testament is the God that can do that in your life. Hit your level. Find out what your talents are, what God's endowed you with in the kingdom, in the world. Be satisfied with what God has given you and then build on it. Build on it. Enlarge it. And understand that God doesn't make any junk. And he didn't create you to fail. He has chosen you to be like him. You know, we're living, youth-wise, we're living in a crazy world today. One group of young people were asked to define life. I, I read how they defined it. One of them said, life is uh, a bunch of spokes without a hub. Another young man said, life is a hollow bubble. Another one said, life is a joke that's not funny. Another one said, life is a jail sentence that you get for being born. Another said, life is a walking shadow. Another said, life is an empty dream. Another said, life is a long headache on a noisy street. Another said, life is a flame that's always burning itself out. No wonder suicide is the number three killer among teenagers in America today. Total frustration. Why? No sense of self-worth, no identity. And it's so beautiful that, you know, even, even if you're, even if you're, the, the background, you know, sometimes we talk about background, family background, and, and a lot of times that's a cop-out, that's an excuse. You've been born again. You've got a new blood lineage, a new heavenly father. Old things have passed away, all things. When you come to Jesus, you are a new creature and you start 
from peg one. You don't even have to consider your past life. And I know sometimes the devil throws our past up to us and he'll say, well, you failed, you messed up, God will never use you. Hey, anytime the devil throws your past up to you, you throw his future up to him. Boy, he got a rough future. That's one of his favorite tricks, you know, especially young men like you. You're, you know, those things on your back are not wings, they're shoulder blades. We look at them. The heroes of the scriptures that I mentioned earlier this morning and what we see is the finished product and and we can't identify with them Paul said we must cast down every imagination well you may as well cast down your imagination that that every one of these fellows in the in the Old Testament virtually except two Joseph and Daniel were at one time chicken I mean they ran from the will of God they were scared. They did not have a sense of who they were and a sense of, uh, of self-worth. I'm telling you, you're not no junk. You're made in the image of God. And God has a plan for your life. Now, where we get, where we get locked in to frustration is God doesn't wear a wristwatch. And we get impatient with the pace of God. And if God's got a one-word enemy, it's hurry. And the culture we live in in North America is hurry, hurry, hurry. Uh, nonstop to do the next thing next. You know, a hundred years ago, if they missed the stagecoach, well, so what? We'll catch the one next month. But today, if we miss one panel in a revolving door, we're off schedule for six weeks. But God doesn't hurry. And we get impatient with the pace of God. You know, hurry up, God. You know, I put life all together for me quickly. But there is a growth process. There is a cultivation process that God wants to bring us through to a, to a, self, to a place of, of self-esteem and self-worth. I want to say it again. Get you a good image of victory. In the first chapter of the book of um, Ephesians, Paul said he hath chosen us. And he goes on down in that same book and said he has adopted us. And he goes on down in that same book, chapter 1, and says he has accepted us in the beloved. Look at that. Chosen, adopted, accepted. You know what we preachers do when we preach on the book of Ephesians? We'll jump into chapter 4. Be not drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit, put on the whole armor of God. And sometimes we frustrate people because there we are decking them out in armor when we haven't given them any identity. And we're suiting them out to go fight and they don't know who they are. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul let the church at Ephesus know who they were. He said, He's chosen you. God Almighty chose you. Well, that's thrilling. And not only did he choose me, but he adopted me. And there's, there's three or four Greek words used for adopt. We only have one in the English. But this one means he saw me as grown. Now, let me explain that to you. 
What Paul was saying is when Jesus Christ chose you, he immediately saw you as an overcomer, mature, grown, victorious. He did not choose you to fail. If you fail, it's not because that was in the plan of God. Because the word adopted means mature, complete, in victory. So number one, he chose me. Number two, when he adopted me, he already saw me as sitting at the right hand in the eternal glories. He hadn't planned any defeat. And then the last thing is he's accepted me and the beloved. God Almighty has accepted you. Now, we have trouble accepting one another. I'm telling you, God accepts you. Warts and all. Freckles and all. Blemishes and all. We're accepted in the beloved. Now, maybe I'm not getting through. Let me, let me give you another example. Suppose I went to Tupelo, Mississippi to our children's home, and I told Brother Drury, the superintendent there, I said, I want to adopt a child. And I said, now, Brother Drury, I, I don't want you to let me choose. i tell you what I want. I want the, if you've got one here that's inhibited, that's deformed, uh, that's uh, uh, maybe a little mentally retarded, that's the one I want. And he'd say, yeah, I got just the one, Susie. She was abused by her father, brought here when she was four. She, um, uh, she's, uh, several years behind and she's uh, very reticent and retiring and I don't know that she'll ever come out. That's the one I want. Okay, suppose I choose Susie and then I adopt her. And then I take her home and I say to her, now Susie, I want to lay down the ground rules. This is your room here. And anytime anybody comes and knocks on the door, you run to your room and close the door because you know you're about two bricks shy of a load. And... Uh, we don't want anybody to see you. And if anybody comes for dinner, we'll take you in here in the kitchen in the corner and put paper on the floor, and you sit on the floor and eat your meal because your manners are so sloppy. Have I accepted her? Am I helping her? Now, wait a minute. I chose her and I adopted her, but I didn't accept her. And some of us have the concept of a God that has chosen us and adopted us. But we can't ever believe that this great God has accepted us with all of our limitations. He didn't bring you into his house to make fun of you and to stay on your case and to get you down. My God did not save you to see you lost if you want to be saved. And one of the devil's favorite weapons is he will drop a thought in your mind. And then he will run ahead of you and set up a temptation situation to correspond with that thought. And then when you get there, you've already been thinking about it, and there it is. And the devil says, see there, I told you so. But Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. And he, he'll throw a lot of shoddy stuff into our mind that we don't have to retain and don't have to keep. And then he'll lay a guilt trip on us because we're thinking of a bunch of stuff that, that we don't think belongs there. Remember... You may not control what comes to your mind, but you don't have to make it yours. And you don't have to let the devil lay a guilt trip on you and an inferior feeling because of something that the devil has done. Lay it at the feet of the devil, right where it belongs. You don't have to accept it. Praise God, that's not my thought. I've been in prayer and had some of the craziest things bounce off the wall into my mind. Some of the cruddiest thinking you ever heard of. My God, right while I'm praying. You know? And then the devil had come. Ooh, 
You know, the voice of sweeping condemnation is never from God. Anytime something comes, there's something wrong with you. You know, I, it took me a long time to learn this. I, I, uh, I'd get up some morning, I wasn't feeling so well, you know, and the Holy Ghost wasn't juking and jiving in my soul like I thought. The devil said, something wrong with you. Boy, you've lost it. You're backslid as a yard dog. And uh, all that muddy thinking, that crud going through my mind, and I, it took me a while to find out that that voice of sweeping condemnation is not of God. Because if it's of God and there's something wrong, he'll say, Thou art the man, and here's the problem. The Holy Spirit never nags. The Holy Spirit never nags. And I don't nag you. And, and, and these little yapping, nagging, aggravating uh, things, that's not of God. Uh, John said, in First John, he said, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. You know what he's talking about? There's two types of condemnation, sin condemnation and self-condemnation. And if the devil can't get us to sin, he'll get us under self-condemnation, laying guilt trips on ourselves, always thinking there's something wrong, something wrong, something wrong. Next time the devil tells you something wrong, turn around and ask him what it is. He's not going to answer you. But he said, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And what he's talking about there is self-condemnation. If he can't get you to sin, he'll get you miserable, constantly condemning yourself with low self-esteem. That I'm nobody from nowhere, going no place, and nobody likes me, and nobody understands me, and, you know, how can I, you know, the, the, is this Pentecostal way really right? Is all of this really necessary? I've been down that road but have a good sense of the fact that Jesus Christ chose me. Jesus Christ adopted me. And now Jesus Christ accepts me. Hallelujah. Totally. I heard a very wise pastor tell something some time ago that I'll never forget. He said he had a young man that had only been saved for a short time. All these fellas in, 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 in the Old Testament, you know, that we read about so much, they weren't perfect. You go to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and these people, man, they had problems. Ex-drunks, harlots, liars, cheats, all kind of hang-ups, and they weren't fugitives from a wax museum. They were cut out of the same boat cloth that you and I are cut out of. But God took them, and God used them, you know, it's possible to be eminently successful with men and a total wipeout with God. And to be a total wipeout with man and to be acceptable with God. You see, we are accustomed to thinking that faith demands evidence. But the writer said faith is the evidence. If I can just get you to see one thing tonight, Jesus Christ accepts you. And there's a difference in acceptance and approval. I can accept you without approving of what you're doing and can work on you. And our Lord does that. It's a relationship. 
Uh, I've heard preachers preach that the prodigal son, you fellas ever read about the prodigal son? That he said, I'm going back to my father's house. He didn't say that. 16th of Luke, read it. Or, or 15th. He said, I am going back to my father. It wasn't a relationship with a house or a structure. It was a relationship with his father that he was building his return upon. And sometimes we'll say, well, I'm going back to the church and I'm going to try to line up to all the standards and that's fine and that's good, but you're looking at it backwards. The first thing you've got to build a relationship with is with the father. And if you can build a relationship with the father, well, then the house rules which I'm sure the Father had them, the house rules will fall into place. But don't try to abide by the house rules before you have a relationship with the Father or you'll have total frustration. Now, don't go off and say, I didn't say you don't have to obey the house rules or live up to the standards, whatever you want to call it. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's a heap easier if you've got a good relationship with the Father. Amen? And to think that this almighty... Would think enough of me to use me and to let me in on this great thing. And even though there was a time when I was chicken and I ran from God, and I'm certainly not proud of what I used to be, I was a mess when I was about some of your ages. Two messes and a half. You know, when you think that a shameful cross, a cross is such a sign of helpless weakness that it seems impossible for it to be the system of divine saving power. The cross itself shows us that God can take things of, of this. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, and uh, think about this. Paul said, not many wise men, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now listen very closely to that. Again, this is important. Not many wise men, not many mighty, not many noble, but God hath chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the things that are base things of the world, the things that are despised, hath God chosen, yea, things that are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Hallelujah. That simply means that God uses foolish things, weak things, base things, despised things, and non-entities. God uses chickens for doves. Hey, this is God's army. I'm telling you, this is God's army. We got General Foolish. We've got Colonel Weak, we've got Major Base, we've got Captain Despise, and we've got Lieutenant Nonentity, and God's using them to bring to naught the things that are. You see, when God picks up the likes of us and uses us and gets glory out of us, then nobody can brag on us. They'll have to say, if that fellow ever does anything, to God be the glory. And this is God's army, nothing but a bunch of uh, chickens, the five ranks in the gospel army. Fools. Paul said, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. The weak are the second rank. Paul said, when I'm weak, I'm strong. His strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, despised, based, debased, uh, 
nobody is it. It's a, it's a laughable, laughable army. And yet this is exactly what God has chosen to bring to naught the things that are. What a world. You know, Abraham never owned an acre of real estate except the burial plot, and he had a hard time getting it. And he lived a hundred years tenaciously holding on to a promise he never saw fulfilled in his lifetime because he knew he was a part of the eternal purpose of God. God promised him all the land from the great river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. He never did accept it, or rather never did inherit it, but he had the promise. And he knew he was part of the eternal purpose of God. And fellas, understand that. You may never see all your dreams fulfilled in your lifetime, all the things that you feel that want to come to birth. But you are a part of the eternal purpose of God. And God has a plan for you. And I don't know that Abraham ever really understood it all. I doubt that he did. But he just kept moving on. Saul... Remember Saul King? Boy, he was a bright fellow, wasn't he? He couldn't even find his daddy's donkeys, and God made a king out of him. Yeah. Abraham lying about his wife, and God makes him the father of the faithful. And David, who's a type of Christ, political genius, singer, warrior, that's what he was on the outside. But what was he on the inside? His thought life went renegade. He got in trouble, but he proves that failures don't have to be fatal. Joseph ran from Polly Potiphar, and David got into it with Bathsheba. And all of these fellows are in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not glorifying what they did. They were all chicken. But by the regenerative power of God, God used them to his glory. And there's a great big world out there. And you may feel a little chicken, but God sees doves in the making. That's absolutely what he sees. And, and here's the reason that God can use fellows like Abraham and David and even Elijah who got depressed and Jeremiah, boy, Jeremiah was really a great prophet. We call him a major prophet. But he preached over 30 years without a convert, and he got so disgusted and depressed one time till he said, I want to go in the wilderness and open a motel. That's right, he said, I want a lodging place in the wilderness. He was so thoroughly disgusted with life and the ministry. And yet today we call him a major prophet. Judge nothing before it's time. You can't pull yourself up with the roots every day and wonder why you're not growing. There's a process involved in the making of a man of God. You see, salvation is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacturing of a saint is the task of a lifetime, said Alan Redpath. It takes time. We're not growing mushrooms. We're growing acorns. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, all of us have felt a little chickeny at times, but God has doves in mind. Now, here's the reason that God could uh, use these fellows. In every case, they used their experiences as a stepping stone. They used even their failures as a stepping stone, and they were not 
bitter. Everybody say bitter. Don't ever get bitter. Life will either make you bitter or better. Life is a grindstone, and whether it grinds you down or polishes you up depends on what you're made out of and how you can take it. You know, some, some people have a sloppy view of God. They think that, that God is the Gestapo of the sky, and the lightning is his nightstick, and the evening star is his badge, and the thunder's the growl of his rage, and that this God looks down on earth and said, Hey, fellas, are you enjoying living? And if we say, Yeah, Lord, we are, he said, Cut it out. You've got to be miserable to be holy. Ah, we don't know that kind of God. These fellas that I'm talking about were turned into doves because they took their chicken experience. Failures make good fertilizer for the future. I mean, you, you can learn out of them. I'd rather learn out of successes. Who likes to learn out of failures? But there's no waste in God's economy. Don't ever let the devil lay this on you, that you're nobody from nowhere going no place. God doesn't make any junk, and you're a kid of the king. And God's got a plan for your life, be it 30, 60, 100. Now, in every case, these fellows that I'm talking about finally said, Lord, I put the keys to my future in your hands. I want to be used of God. Here I am. Blank check. Keys. Take me. I'm ready. And then don't get impatient. There's two ways to get an egg that has a chicken. If you want to get into an egg that's got a chicken in it, there's two ways to do it. I'll tell you the two ways. You know chickens come out of eggs. You fellas knew that, didn't you? Okay, I just want to check because we're talking about turning chickens into doves. I, I was raised on a farm. You can take an egg with a hammer and break it and get the bitty out of there. But in the process, the bitty will not develop and it'll die. Or you can create an atmosphere of warmth and that chick will come out in his own time. And sometimes we get so anxious for life until we want to get the hammer and break into it prematurely before God's time. But the important thing as you're developing is to get in the right atmosphere. Paul said evil companions corrupt good morals. Get with the right people. Post your loyalty with your pastor and with your youth group, with your friends. Create an atmosphere and in time what's in you will come out under the right warmth and atmosphere. See yourself as becoming. God, you made me as I am, as a unique personality made in the image of God, and you're going to use me. And in all of this, keep a servant's heart, and God will let you in on some secrets. Third chapter of John, Jesus at Cain of Galilee, they ran out of punch for the reception at the wedding. It could be that his mother was in charge of refreshments. We don't know because she was overly concerned about it. She could have been. Jesus turned the water into wine. You remember that? And the governor of the feast did not know where it came from, but there's a little scripture that says, but the servants knew. 
A man with a servant's heart gets on the inside of God. I'll tell you why the servants knew, because it took 167 gallons of water that had to be drawn and set before Jesus, and they didn't have hydrants. They had to draw it. And they drew 167 urns or gallons of, of water and set it before him when it looked like nothing was going to happen. But when you're in on that water-drawing business, when you've got a servant's heart and a servant's spirit, then you're going to be in on some divine secrets. And what a sense of worth those little servants might have had, or must have had, to have known something the governor didn't know. Hey, let me tell you something. I know things President Reagan doesn't know. And you fellas do too. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. There are things that we know that some of the great minds of this world don't know. In fact, the Bible said they can't even discern them. Their foolishness to them. And God has revealed it to babes. What a sense of worth to think that we have tapped into the energy of the universe. And it is flowing through you right now. The mind of Christ is in your mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. The Spirit of the Almighty. Just think about this. I know a God that took nothing hung it nowhere, called it a world, and made it stick. Everything you see was made of nothing. And that God is resident in your soul. What a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. Hallelujah. I get excited thinking about the potential. If you fellas just knew the potential that's in you. And, and as I told you today, don't ever let the devil come with his exaggerations and his flatteries because compliments are like perfume. They smell good, but don't try to drink it. fellow believes his own press, he's in trouble. But I'm just here to tell you that ordinary Joes like you, chickens, all of us have been chicken at times. I was... Raised on a farm. I was driving up here today telling Brother Manuel Rogers all about these cows, these Holstein cows. Just a farm boy that God spoke to many, many years ago, and I opened my heart to Jesus. And he saw something in me. And I, I said, God, there's not much of me. But all there is of me is yours. And I had a lot of ups and downs, and I, I was chicken. I was scared, frightened, fearful, afraid of life. You know, where am I going? Dear God, I'm not with you. But it begins with a good sense of self-worth. You are somebody. Now, you're not the fellow next to you, but you're some, and God's got a plan. I promise you, God has got a plan for your life. Early in life, establish good prayer habits, consistent prayer habits. Discipline and priorities are the two words that I spoke of this morning. 
if you can learn to set your priorities. You can't accent every syllable of life. You've got to accent the priorities. And discipline yourself to do the things that you know God wants you to do. Sky's the limit. Now, maybe none of you, maybe some of you, maybe one of you will be a preacher or full-time vocational service. But every one of you are going to be in Christian service somewhere. And ask God to give you the direction where he wants you to be. And you won't just be a school teacher that's a Christian. You'll be a Christian that's a school teacher. And every one of you will have a ministry. And ask God to place you in life where he can get the most glory out of you. And he'll do it. Because God uses chicken. You're going to have a lot of devil too. My Lord, you're going to fight that slew foot. In the first chapter, let me show you this. In the first chapter of Mark, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. The next verse said he was led with the Spirit in the wilderness. The next verse said, then cometh the devil. There was only one verse between the dove and the devil. And you can leave some of the most dovey experiences in God, go one verse and run into the devil. But if you've been with Jesus, you'll make it. And don't ever, don't ever live for God by feelings. If the devil finds out that you operate on feelings alone, he'll keep you as nervous as a termite in a yo-yo. I mean, you'll always be up and down. You cannot go by feelings. You've got to learn to trust fact and not feelings. For instance, I've been married 35 years. Suppose I got up one morning and I told my wife, I don't feel married to you anymore. Well, would she say, since you don't feel married to me anymore, you're not married to me anymore. You don't know my wife. She could go back in our lockbox and there's an old yellow document called a marriage license. It's already turning yellow, Brother Cisco. I signed it 35 years ago. And she could say, buddy, I don't care what you feel. You signed a covenant with me. And we're going to trust the fact, not your feelings. You're mine. And hey, let me tell you something. Devil say, you, you don't feel it. Yeah, hey, devil, wait a minute. I'm in covenant relationship with him. Somewhere back a year or two or five years ago, I signed a covenant with Jesus. And I want you to know, devil, that regardless of how I feel, I am his and he is mine. And I'm in covenant relationship. You've got to learn that principle. You don't go by feelings. You can't, even, you can't stay married by feelings because love is an emotion. It's up and it's down. And one day you feel like you could eat her up and the next day you wish you had her. But there's got to be a commitment. I don't always agree with my wife, but I'm committed to her. And there is that commitment to God that is unchangeable. And we all have a little chicken in us. But chickens are perfect, perfect meat to become doves. Ever great man in them. Peter, Simon Peter, was chicken. A little old maiden girl said, you're one of them. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. And he went to cussing like a sailor. 
because he was one. And she said, well, that convinces me. Nobody talk like you could have been with Jesus. And he went out and he wept. Well, he's washed up, wasn't he? Let me tell you what Jesus did. After the resurrection, Jesus told, said, go before me to my disciples and tell them I'll meet them in Galilee. And Jesus added one little thing. Tell Peter to come also. Tell that old chicken to come on. I'm going to make a dove out of him. I still love him. Hallelujah. Hey, fellas, you can make it. Man, is a tremendous future. There's a surge of revival in our world today. This is the most exciting day. It's a day of paradox. I mean, it's a mixed up. There's more devils. I'm fighting more devils than I ever knew existed. And there's more confusion. And, and yet at the same time, there is an urgency of the Spirit. You are blessed to be alive today. Blessed to be involved in the end time and in what God's going to do. And to think God trusted you with this day. He didn't trust me. He didn't trust Brother Cisco. We're on the western slopes. But God brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's never been a generation in whom the Lord had any more trust. He trusted you. You're not here at this retreat by accident. There's no accidents with God, just incidents. If, if just a little light can get in you, God trusts you. He trusted you. Why didn't he let me be born today? So that I'd have the clothes and quarter of this 20th century to go 100 miles an hour like some of you go. He didn't trust me with that. He trusted you. you got to see that. God allowed me to be born today and to be where I am today because he's got a great plan for me. I believe it. Now, I'm on break. Believe it or not, I've been going about 50 minutes. And I'm going to take a few questions if you have any. Anybody got any questions?